Okay. Uh, well, thank you all for coming, and thanks to Gary. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, and thank you, Jody and Andrea, and um, all the rest of the staff that's continued to make my stay so pleasant here. Um, when I was 13 and in the eighth grade, I decided I would be a writer. It happened like this. Our eighth grade uh, girls PE teacher also taught us spelling. And on one occasion, uh, she assigned us to um, uh, write a story with all our spelling words. Uh, she read mine to the class. And after that, I decided I should be a writer. Um, I uh, set about trying to write a, a book of stories. Uh, it was very difficult in our cramped three-room apartment to really find a, a place to work. The kitchen really didn't have good light. Um, there was a, a living room that didn't have uh, the chairs or furniture to uh, work. So I set up in the bathroom. I uh, borrowed my father's uh, ottoman from, from his chair, um, put that, uh, set down the lid of the toilet, put his old royal typewriter on top, and set to work. Um, my parents bragged to their friends and relations that I was writing a book. That was very embarrassing. And uh, when uh, I finished, um, uh, um, he sent it off to a publisher. Um, the printed rejection I got um, had a space that said, what shall we do with your manuscript? And I really was too dismayed to send for it. But it didn't deter me from my decision to be a writer. Uh, when I was in high school, I had an English teacher who was really a mentor. And she was taking a course from Writer's Digest, How to Write Stories That Sell. And uh, there were three kinds of stories. There, was, there were the romances, the slicks, for women's magazines and such, and something called the off-trail story, which uh, was noted mainly for its uh, unpredictable ending. I decided that I wanted to write off-trail stories. And so I, I tried to, to do that. Uh, then I was in college, and one of the first classes I took was an introduction to fiction, which was taught by a really gifted teacher. And I was exposed to the stories of Hawthorne, Catherine Ann Porter, Eudora Welty, Chekhov, uh, Flannery O'Connor, uh, some very wonderful writers, and I knew immediately this was the kind of story that I wanted to write, if I could. Uh, there was something that uh, they all shared in common, and that was a sense of, you had the sense that it was absolutely right. They had kind of a rightness. And also, you felt, after you read them, at least I did, that something had changed, that I had some kind of an experience that made a difference to me. And that's what I wanted to do. So I continued to write. And um, I wrote uh, for stories, uh, sent them around for 17 years to close to 100 magazines. Uh, 
without having anything accepted towards the end of that period i decided that since i couldn't get my work published i would try to do something more useful that is a drawer full of typescript doesn't really get you anywhere and you in i settled for ceramics i thought you know i could at least make some bowls and things and that would be useful and i enjoyed doing that and then finally I had two stories accepted. Uh, I was a finalist in a competition for the Virginia Quarterly Review, and they published the story, and another one in the Colorado Quarterly. But it was another five years before I published any others, and they were in two very small, obscure magazines that uh, ceased to exist very shortly. So um, I, uh, I, uh, I, I went on, uh, and then something amazing happened. I uh, submitted a collection of stories to the Associated Writing Programs competition. I didn't win the competition, but the director of the series uh, uh, recommended my collection to uh, the Illinois Press, and it was published in the Illinois Short Fiction Series. That's a story too, but uh, at any rate, to my amazement, the first reader uh, who recommended it very highly, wrote a strong endorsement for the book, was the editor of the Swanee Review, who had rejected almost every story in the book. <laughs> Um, after that, he was a very strong supporter of my work. Uh, during the years that he was editor, I published 10 stories, and um, 29 poems, and six essays in the Swanee Review. Uh, so I thought really that um, uh, I, had, I had been very fortunate in, in that. At the same time, I reconnected again with the visual arts, which I had really enjoyed in high school and college. And um, the uh, Lilly Endowment, uh, the Lilly uh, Drug Company had a foundation, and the IRS told them they had to spend some of their money instead of hoarding it all. So they set up a program whereby any college or university in Indiana could uh, recommend two people, nominate two people, for a fellowship, a year's fellowship, to do something outside their field. I was teaching literature, so I put together a project with uh, Indian um, Inuit art and mythology, and I received one of the first six fellowships. And that I went up to Purdue University, took a bunch of <coughs> art courses, went up to Montreal and went to museums of Inuit art, and then to the Eastern Arctic to look at Inuit art in its uh, creative context. So I thought that uh, after I had gotten into things, I had too much uh, for one year's uh, time, and I realized that I had entered into something that I could probably be doing for the rest of my life. So that was the other thing. Um, I thought really that I would live and die as a short story writer. I love the form. 
I've published about 70 short stories in literary magazines in the eight collections and still love to write them. But I had uh, this urge to write something that had to do with uh, carnival. I don't know where the idea came from. I really wanted to travel with the carnival, but I had various obligations and that didn't seem to be anything I could really do. Um, I was whining about this to a friend of mine and she said, why don't you invent one? I thought, oh, well, I suppose I can do that. So I started reading. I realized uh, shortly that I really wanted um, circus in there somewhere and uh, didn't know quite what to do. But um, one night uh, I was teaching then at, uh, in the writing program at Vermont College. Several of us were sitting around enjoying the effects of a mind-enhancing a mind substance. <laughs> and after we had solved nearly all the problems of the world, I went off to sleep and I couldn't get to sleep just things were revolving in my head and suddenly I had an inspiration about where I might go with this idea I came home and wrote the first chapter in a month which is a very short time for me to do anything I sent it off to the Swanee Review uh, they accepted it by return mail which is something that should happen at least once to every writer. And when it came out, an agent took me on and placed the uh, book Carnival for the Gods uh, with uh, the Vintage Contemporary series. Um, I, uh, the, uh, I didn't know exactly what to do after I wrote that first chapter, uh, but uh, when I sat down, things would come. I, th I had the idea that I wanted this uh, carnival to travel maybe in some American cities and uh, I'd deal with their adventures. But uh, I wanted the cities to stand for something too. And I, it, it seemed to be too complex to do that. So I ended up with another idea from my eighth grade education and that was uh, to have them travel in the seven cities of Cibola, which were the uh, cities that the Spaniards were looking for when they came north to New Mexico from Mexico. They were supposed to be, uh, had to have roofs of gold and treasures and all of that. Uh, the Spaniards didn't find them, but I did. Uh, they are in a disputed territory between Mexico and the U.S and this was where um, my carnival was going to travel. Um, and the, the owners of the carnival, Dusty and Alta, had a great dream. They wanted to create a kind of circus carnival that would exist at the heart of a city and uh, be greater than the greatest show on earth, hence the title, Carnival for the Gods. Only things kept getting in the way of that and when you see them, they're really down on their luck. Various people in their acts have left them. It's just a, a, a very bad situation for them. And this is where the book begins, at that moment when they're really in the pits. So um, they uh, eventually they start their travels through the seven cities. And this is the, uh, the action of the first novel. 
Um, I, it looked like um, the, the novel got uh, very favorable reviews in the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, and a wonderful one in the Cleveland Plain Dealer. But the editor had left the series just as the book came out, so it was an orphan, which meant that the press dropped it very quickly, and so that was it. Um, actually, uh, another interesting thing happened. An independent filmmaker found it in the remainder bin down in Florida. He optioned the book, spent, I think, as much time on the screenplay as uh, I did on the novel. And um, it was wonderful. We had wonderful conversations about it. He always asked my opinions. And uh, if it had gone, he would have paid me $50,000 to be a consultant on the set, which was a lot of money then, as it is not bad now either. And, um, but even after he won the Sundance Prize and had another very successful film, he could never get the backing for it. So that was that. Um, I went on, um, I figured I was all through in New York. My second novel, Ghost Dance, A Play of Voices, was published by LSU Press, which had a very fine fiction program. They really were enthusiastic about the book and nominated it for the Penn Faulkner Award. Um, I went on to uh, write two other books uh, set in New Mexico, um, one of them a, uh, a, re a kind of uh, in inspired by the epic of uh, Gilgamesh. Uh, I turned it into a Western epic. Um, my husband said once, uh, I think that book would make a good story set in the West. We were teaching it, and uh, that uh, rolled around in my head for a while, and so I, I did that. Um, I never expected to return to the world of Carnival. As far as I was concerned, it was finished. Ten years after the book was published, during a very difficult period in my life, I, was, um, I went to Crete uh, and sat on the beach and jotted down a bunch of notes about uh, the midget came home and wrote a novel uh, about him. Uh, Giant and the Midget are two of the characters in the first novel. So I wrote a novel about the midget, and um, he undertakes uh, a journey in the book that um, I wrote about him called Small Wonder. Then two or three years later, I wrote uh, another book, this time about the kid, who is also in the first novel. and. Um, he uh, has a, a, an interesting challenge, too. Uh, he wants to find the seventh city. They've been through six of them in the first book. And he's told that it doesn't exist. So naturally, he has to go look for it. Uh, so that's um, what happens in, in a book uh, called uh, The Dream Seekers. And then I wrote what was to be the last novel that returns to the, the uh, central female character in Carnival for the Gods, Alta, and who is quietly drinking herself to death down in Sarasota, Florida, where a lot of circus people go. So I had a quartet and uh, tried to uh, interest publishers in that, but uh, that's kind of a lot to be interested in. And then um, one another character from the first novel, Amazing Grace, uh, who dances with snakes, insisted on having her story. So now it's a quintet, and uh, it's my major work, and 
and there it is. So uh, with that, I'll, uh, I'll let you um, have a sample of it. Marie kindly uh, offered to read from the books, so take it away, Marie. <laughs> well, it's it's my uh, great pleasure to uh, to read from Gladys's books, and um, I'll do something that the author of uh, of a book probably couldn't do, which is to read from one of the um, the blurbs, because she probably couldn't, you know pat herself on the back this way. Kelly Cherry, uh, a marvelous uh, short story writer and, and novelist, wrote this about, uh, about Gladys. Gladys Swan has written a tough-talking, freewheeling, high-flying study of ideas, an inquiry into the nature of the peculiar. With a fine irony, Carnival for the Gods places us front row center at the greatest show on earth, ourselves. So I'm reading from all five, uh, little excerpts from all five of the novels, and it begins uh, with uh, the first one, Carnival for the Gods. It was the first time Dusty had ever backhanded her, and it was not just the blow, the pain, the blood from her lip flowing saltily into her mouth that gave Alta the, the shock. It was the sense that something fatal had struck at the roots of her life. Things would never be the same. It was the edge of Dusty's ring that had cut her lip, a gold ring with a strange little head carved in ivory that he'd bought during a fit of extravagance in Kansas City and said was his good luck and that he'd never part with it. As she stood in the cramped little bathroom looking into the mirror, teeth all outlined in red as though she'd been eating red-hearted plums or pomegranates, the lips still bleeding, it seemed as though she'd never staunched the flow. This is my life, she thought. This is time leaking away, as it has been doing year upon year, and I'm standing here letting it happen like I was born without a brain. The whole of the little trailer had shaken with their quarrel, till even the words and the clash of voices could not contain the violence. Pansy, the little curly-haired dog she kept, a cross between a poodle and a wire-haired terrier, had taken refuge under the couch and, looking at Alta with brown eyes that seemed full of the light of tragedy, still refused to come out. Dusty, meanwhile, had thrown himself out of the trailer and into the truck, banging doors all the way, setting up a cloud of dust as he roared off into town, leaving her there alone with the freaks and the animals in the broken-down carnival. She dabbed at her lip as she tried to calm her feelings. She was looking pretty terrible at the moment, face blotched, bags under her eyes, broken lip. But she wasn't all that old, 47, and there was still a chance for what? For love? For money? Money talks. She'd learned that much. It says yes, and it says no. Says, you owe it to, her, to yourself, baby. Go out, go out, sorry, go on and have it. Be my guest. Says, you're out of luck, sister. Says, go to the city and have yourself a ball. Says, stay home and starve your gut. Says, turn on the gold-plated faucet, break out the champagne. Says, stay away, lady, you smell bad and nobody's gonna give you a second look. Says, dream, the sky's the limit. Says, look at the walls peeling. 
says, go hang yourself. It says, Alta concluded, you have been with a man who's brought you nothing but trouble and grief, all the while promising you the world. And where has it landed you? Down in the flat lands with blood on your teeth, always full of harebrained schemes, and he wasn't half as crazy as the rest of the outfit, only more unreliable. I'm sick of this life, filled up to here. That's how it had begun. Dusty, sitting at the narrow formica-top table with the bench on either side at which they had shared what might be called their domestic life, was adding up to one of his interminable columns of figures, always trying to turn nothing into something, as Alta had it, to make less come out to be more. Sick of it. He looked up. There's no anchor hanging out of your ass. The truth of this observation left her momentarily speechless. A yawl and a dead wind. Then her fury unlidded, and the fine brew the years had whipped to froth came boiling over, pouring out. The salt was in her mouth, the distillation of years of sweat and tears and gall, all she might have had, all that had gone down the drain. It was the sandstorm that finally did it to her. Bad enough to have the equipment truck break down in the flattest, most godforsaken stretch of natural freakishness she'd ever laid eyes on, like somebody's uninteresting nightmare. A world created out of what any sensible being would have rejected in the first place, or else reached for only in the dry heaves of violent boredom. Things that twisted and sharp and spiny and hard. Some of them reached up and out with arms dried and dead in their attitudes of empty aspiration. They seemed neither plant nor tree, these cacti and Joshua trees, nor alive, these clutches of dry grass and sagebrush against a rocky ground that gave off a hard glint. The rocks that rose in the distance looked to have no living thing growing on them, only telephone poles and the blacktop to show that human beings had been here, mainly, Alta thought, to get through it and on to somewhere else the sort of place you might consider beautiful only if you didn't have to be there. And then later on, a long time into the afternoon, Dusty comes back with a surprise. For a time she sat there blank and empty, all used up. The anger of the morning seemed as far away as last month. She wasn't even waiting for anything. She turned off the chili, then letting the evening move in around her. She sat with her dog in her lap. The deepening sky was a rich blue, a mingling of blues, lighter and dark with a smoky feeling underneath. It came down into the landscape, softening the edges of the mountains, turning brown slopes to lavender, to indigo, to darker shapes, yet that made all of it one vast stillness that reached far beyond her, perhaps to the borders of the world. There were only the little lights of the few trailers left, animal trainer, giant and midget, magician come handyman. That was the carnival now, the scrapings from the pot. From out of the indigo, she saw headlights approach, then heard a truck pull up and stop. She went outside. Dusty was back, but with somebody with him in the front seat. She bent down, leaning on the side of the truck to look in. A girl. She could just about make her out in the gathering dusk. 
Though she looked to be no more than 17, 18, she knew everything a woman could know, and then some. This is grace, Dusty said, by way of introduction. Amazing grace. Where do you see what she can do? We'll hit the big time yet. I know what she can do, Alta thought. Amazing, all right. Probably one of those street kids that had left home at 12 or 13 soon as their parents, uh, soon as their period started and they had their union card for womanhood. Then they peddled it on every street of every town in the great U.S. of A, double A for amazing. Then she noticed a childish face in the narrow seat behind. Dusty, a boy but so wild he looked like some creature that had been torn away from the land and still carried in its eyes the reflection of the water hole from which it drank. The, s the, s the, the snug of the nest where it had spent the night still clinging to the fine white hairs on his arms. Does he talk? She suddenly asked. The words have gone out of him, the girl said, but the singing has stayed behind. He knows the battle of Kitty Moreno and Amigo and the battle of Glorietta Pass and Indian Joe with his fight with a bear and the loves of Pajarito. These are barely human things, Alta found herself thinking, for she had learned to recognize such and they were not new to her experience. And here was another set in front of her that she might look at and talk to and never understand. She could ask questions till her teeth rotted and it wouldn't make a ghost of a difference. There they were, almost cringing in the seat of the truck. In the back, with a boy, she noticed two crates that looked to be the dimensions of their personal property, and inside which something stirred and moved with a vaguely animal and somewhat sinister quality. She didn't ask what. You want something to eat, she asked, for she could recognize hunger too, though on what level she couldn't always tell. I've got a pot of chili in the oven. They stepped out of the truck, the girl rubbing her arms against the evening chill. Alta saw a square of light as the door of Billy Bigelow's trailer opened. He'd be coming too. She looked off into the distance before she went inside. Over in the mountains it looked as though a storm was brewing up. A sudden flash of lightning and the mountains stood out, every slope and draw outlined in angular crossings of brilliance. If it rains, she thought, it will pick up the dust and the sky will fall down in mud. First they'd nearly been swept away, now it was more like likely they'd be mired down, or else the water would come tearing down the mountains in a flash flood. Come on inside, she said, and went to the stove to put the fire on. Dusty was still fiddling outside in the truck while these two stood uncertainly in the doorway. You can wash up in there, she said. The boy's eyes went roaming around the trailer as if it would take getting used to. Alta went about setting the table. Here they were, just another pair among the numbers she had seen in the procession of all the broken, ill-formed, misbegotten things headed out of the world and onto the road, moving from town to town, never calling any place their own. They were her family, if you could call it that. They were her fate. She closed the front door. It was getting cold as night took over the desert. She was closing the door against the night, against the rustle of lizards and the spines of cactus, against whatever shapes lay in the darkness and whatever moved in the silence. Then Bi Billy Bigelow and Dusty came in talking about the day. Only the sound of voices and the smell of chili seemed warm and real.
So um, this is from the next book, Small Wonder, and it's about Curran the midget who must decide to respond to a request from an old flame. The letter arrived innocently enough without so much as a return address, a fan letter. Curran hit on it at first glance. Seldom did they come, but when one appeared, his ears tingled. A pleasant flutter rippled across his midriff. His mind did a little dance. Recognition. Ah, hit me again, lads. Et maintenant, mesdames et messieurs, je vous présente le grand courant. Naturally, it would be in French. And now, once more, from the woman he'd watched, who'd watched his act three nights in a row, so hot for the performance, not even a kid in tow gave her an excuse to revel in the hijinks. He was sure of it. The woman who'd staged her own disappearing act as soon as his and Donovan's was over. He didn't know why she'd struck him that first night as he scanned the audience. No prize, certainly. Blousy, a blown poppy. Bleached hair, painted lips, a certain hectic quality in the cheeks. A face ravaged yet familiar, like a tune, a taste that teases one out of mind. And when she returned the next night, he was not only flattered, but eased, confirmed. His performance mattered. He directed it toward her like a kiss blown in her direction to the mystery woman who'd come just for him. A gift. He was at the top of his form, making them clap till their hands ached. Even Donovan said as much, quite an admission from an old jaguar. In the old days, you'd have had to goose him with a red-hot poker to win even a grunt of approval. In this season of largesse, in the glow of late summer, Curran indulged himself in a few well-earned fantasies. Why let Donovan hog them all? So he was humanity writ small, that much more to prize. Royalty had graced its courts with midgets and dwarves, recognizing a quality so special it was given place among the anointed. Hadn't the great Velazquez painted them? Goya as well. Immortal now. What the populace had cast aside had been rescued, given blessing. Freaks no longer. As for himself, he hugged a long-cherished ambition, not to have his portrait painted, but to create one of his own, at least as large as life. He put the envelope to his nose in the hope of scent, breathed in an indifferent paper smell, and unfolded a piece of lined notebook paper. As soon as he read the first words, the blood thrummed in his temples. No wonder, no wonder. He didn't have to look at the signature. She'd come back once more to haunt him. Dear Edward, he read. So she'd always addressed him, formal, serious. Not Eddie or a wee bit or short stuff. Nothing a 20-year-old who had the goods, so to speak, might lay on him the way everybody else did. No, no. There were better ways to make a satire of him. Edward. Call it her unique brand of affection, as with his parents a sort of euphemism for the scrap of humanity fate had presented them with who would never grow beyond his four feet one inch. Generous of nature, that extra inch. Largesse. There's a tooth missing in front, so I'm not keen on giving out with those million-dollar smiles. One more thing missing in this witch's brew we call life. Do you know folly? Do you know madness? I got my arm plunged in up to the elbows. 
Think of when you knew me, what I had when I was young, taking my good-natured stretch and all that bilking in innocence. Then you got socked, a few wallopers changes your mind about a few things. Yes, I think of her back then, a poppy flaring open, how he'd loved her, ascending joyfully in the fruit fly moment. And for what? So that she could throw him herself away? Elise, as sylph-like as her name, her image still lived with him, the cameo face framed by the chestnut hair, a face he wanted only to frame in memory. But let go of that. Only think of her body in motion. For bones, she had light waves. One more touch and she'd have been a creature of air, the equal of any Chinese acrobat, the highest praise he could confer on her. She should have been a feature act in the circuses both of the US and Europe. He was convinced of it and she'd thrown it all away for love. Women had a way of doing that, but not in his direction. Now even her name didn't fit. So now you have me, a missing tooth and a smoker's hack. You've seen me, gay as who. I saw that eye of yours dart out and scoop me in. Saw your name on the boards when we hit town. Had to see you. What am I here for? Shall she tell? I couldn't make it to the dressing room, though I kept trying. The rot gut gets you primed, then it gives you a kick in the slats. It's this son of mine. You saw him that day I came, a cute little kid. A shudder ran through him. Only now, madder than any of us, madder than a clown. My hands are empty, clawing air. What am I asking? Come, if you got nothing better to do. You liked me well enough once, though I'm not fixing any claims on you, and you've got the past against me. So, this is from Dancing with Snakes, and it's in the voice of um, a character we've already met, Amazing Grace, and this time it's her, it's her voice. Lights all a-dazzle, dancing across the marquee like a comet's tail. That's me, amazing. Featured act here at the new Las Vegas night spot galactic explosions. The latest show, a play of colored lights and images that whirl your mind to worlds beyond imagination. I get to show my stuff here and in Atlantic City and Miami too, plus an offbeat little place in LA. The rest of the time I travel with the circus where I'd rather be. The glitz pays the bills and allows me to save up for my education. My great dream is to go to college and discover the other worlds there. I've got a lot to learn. I have to make up for lost time. So tonight I'll step out on stage in my favorite costume, red and gold, sequins and rhinestones on the outside, me on the inside. Then with well-timed consideration, I remove my veils and girdles and get down to the real thing, me in my bikini, giving a shimmy, getting the parts moving before inviting the snakes to appear. There's a gasp from the audience, count on it. That's my cue, and I'm on, doing my dance. What a way to earn a living, you say, but I'm off into the excitement that holds me breathless, moving with the snakes as they move with me, and maybe you'll get caught up in the wave, in the, in the thrill and fear that clutches at the midriff that takes you to the edge. Amazing, all right, but that's not the half of it. 
Even more amazing is how I got here in the first place, counting all that happened along the way. And I'm not here for keeps. I'm biding my time. There's a special person I'm waiting for to come and tell me his story. Meanwhile, hang on. You'll know all. Snakes? Some people are, shared, are scared spitless by the very mention of them, let alone having one crawl over your skin. Once I read about the Hopi Indians, how they gather snakes and let them crawl all over their bodies as they sit in the kiva, calm and steady as a cedar post. Then they dance with them, rattlers and sidewinders, with their fangs and poison. They call them brother. And after the celebration, they let them go. Though I, too, felt a stab of fear at first, I came to feel a kinship, like they lived inside me. Whatever drew me toward the snakes lived in my childhood before I was able to reach for words to tell about it. When I was a kid, I hardly had a name. It felt like I was kin to animals. Maybe that was on account of something you couldn't give a name to, a wildness that lived in us both without my seeing any difference. I just preferred to get down under the table with the dog or the cat or go chasing after a rabbit in the weeds. There wasn't a whole lot then to tie them to tie me to the human. I couldn't remember anyone calling me by a syllable that drew me to that sound, made me want to take it in. Oh, I might hear, hey, you, or get on over here, you little stinkweed. This from the one who stood in for a father, if he stood anywhere at all. Not that I ever called him daddy. A mouth, that's what he was, all scrunched up like he'd bit off too much of life and wanted to spit out the taste before he'd choked on it. His name was Priam Gillespie. He hated that name the way people pronounced it, pri-am or pre-am. Every once in a while, somebody would say, what the hell kind of name is that? It's what comes of having a librarian for a mother, he'd explain. Damn her hide, anyway. Every once in a while, maybe in a store or the bank, somebody would call him Mr. Gillespie, and I'd look around for the stranger I thought they were speaking to. Sometimes he called me Miss or Missy. Don't give me any of that guff, Missy, or or toots, when I was coming on being a woman. Oh, so now you're getting ready to strut your stuff, eh, toots? I wanted to kick him. Somewhere there was a birth certificate with my paper name, but it just fell by the way. It had nothing to do with me. Whenever somebody spoke it, I didn't look around or say a word. What's your name, honey, some folks would ask, and when they drew a blank, they'd smile down into my face as if getting closer would turn on the light bulb and ask, What's your dolly's name? It wasn't a real doll, just a sock with stuffing in it and button eyes and a mouth sewn on. Name, I'd tell them. Name, that's her name. That would tickle them all right. And Priam would say, she's just ornery, always has been. Maybe ornery could have been my name. Just wait till I can send you over to Texas, he'd say every once in a while like he was trying to get even with me and let that mama of yours do what she was created for. And then under his breath, if she'd quit running around long enough to do anything useful. A voice from long ago ran like a tune through my head. I could remember someone holding my hand. I could almost feel the way it curled around mine, warm and a little moist, even when I couldn't attach a person to it. Was that my mama? I couldn't see her. I was never sure. I really couldn't remember any mama at all. Seems like I'd just happened in this place, like a scrap of paper blown away by the wind. Every once in a while, I'd ask when I was going to Texas, but Priam would pull, his face and s pull a face and say, mind your business. I got troubles enough as it is. 
It took me a while to get a name, as I'll tell you, and it happened in a way I never expected. That seems to be the way of things, full of surprises. And two small excerpts from the last two books, um, The Dream Seekers, um, and um, Gladys uh, uh, told you that, um, that uh, the kid was looking for that seventh city and was told that it didn't exist and he had to go looking for it and here he found it. And this is from The Dream Seekers. There it stood, all in sunlit glory, lost in radiance of itself. Towers, roofs, casements, doorways, intersecting planes of white and dazzle, the seventh city. Beneath the lavender glow of bluffs, sun reflected from which the city seemed to float, dissolve into luminous turquoise unmixed with cloud, and beyond the peak enclosed by mist. Mount Shababa, home of the gods, merely to look, brought pain, the leap of joy and longing beyond the ache in his bones from the night, the many nights on hard ground. The white radiance washed over him like water, filled him, floated his heart into his eye, turned him, the kid, into his gaze and lost him there. Sucked down all that had threatened to swamp him, days and years of useless wandering to reach the pinnacle, nights of confusion and dismay, falling about in drunken stupor, not caring where he threw his carcass or what squalor choked his mind, what voices lacerated his ear. Truculent voices ringed with cigarette smoke and raucous laughter, insisting the bouts he staggered in were the true delights of the flesh. And they were, for they took him beyond it, took him past his anguish, only to land him in a swamp. Then the voices in his head took over, denying the existence of any city except the mean streets where he was being dragged to the end of his tether. Only some obscure impulse kept up the maddening itch, drove him insane beyond all knowing why. He was staggered by the shining spectacle, barely able to stand like the survivor of some fever still subject to its attacks. Let him hold the city in his eye. Let it not be a mirage. To look back now, was to fall into the running rivers of self-loathing. And finally, from the last of the quintet, um, Down to Earth, a book of improvisations. The kid waits to, the, the kid wants her, Alta, to come back to the circus. The kid wanted to do something for me, and the question was, would I let him? He's on his way up in the world these days, and there's no telling how high he'll soar. I figure he's got the goods, but when I put my mind around what he's aiming to do, my breath catches. Really what Dusty struggled to do on the grand scale, take the world by the tail and change things at the core. It takes a kind of high-feathered ambition, all right, to think you're the one who's going to make a difference. On the outside, it looks like arrogance. And it takes a powerful imagination. Sometimes I can't help thinking it's an affliction when the idea gets to buzzing in your brain worse than any horsefly and keeps biting at your rear when you're not looking. I watched Dusty take his knocks, let me tell you, thinking he could create some kind of grand celebration at the heart of the city, carnival and circus all rolled into one. 
and all it finally added up to was one ragtag little outfit you could never tell would make it from one day to the next. What the kid has done is put together a circus that sends your heart soaring and keeps your blood tingling. I've seen it. You just never want, to, never want the show to quit. One great act after another full of rip and daring and comic routines to double you over. Some, something to celebrate, all right. And I keep thinking, imagine, there must be something to it after all. The way it lightens your foot, puts a glow around the edges of the day, it would be enough to gladden Dusty's heart to have an heir carry on his dream. That way, if only he could know about it, he could maybe think it wasn't all for nothing. But then the kid knows magic, what it's supposed to do, the way it can change you, even if the world gets caught in the same old snags. So what are you going to do? Sit here and wait for the final curtain without even putting on a show? Damn, I thought, trying to ignore whatever was playing with my head. I couldn't stand to refuse him, couldn't stand to do it myself. You're on, I said. I knew you had it in you. I wasn't sure I could bear his triumph. <laughs>